Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Let's Talk Recovery and Family Podcast. My name is Jack. Hope everybody is doing okay today. Uh, it's been, I don't know if anybody's watching the weather in Texas. It's raining everywhere and it's humid. It's, oh my gosh. It's kind of crazy. You're sweating going into the shower, sweating coming out of the shower. It's just crazy, crazy rain all over the place. Um, one more thing. If, um, you are listening to this podcast for the first time. Thanks for showing up. I appreciate you. If you're returning, awesome. Hopefully, I'm able to help you uh, gain some insight, maybe a little education. If you're a family member of an alcoholic or an addict, I'm glad you're here listening. Keep coming back. Right? Keep coming back. Also, um, if you get anything out of this, don't hesitate to hit that uh, support button. Anything that you might fill up to contributing will definitely help me keep up my equipment. And make sure I keep things up and running. In our last session, we talked a lot about stimulants, right? Um, physical effects of stimulants is just crazy. Um, family members, I'm hoping you're tuning in to this one because it's going to be quite a bit of some education. Stimulants excite both body and mind. Keep that in mind, right? There's a whole lot of chemical reaction going on. Keeps the brain going on overdrive, gets the body going on overdrive, right? This can result in uncontrollable physical activity, sometimes a little more than overdrive, right? Sometimes you see those tweakers with the twitches. That's kind of sometimes what that is, right? You'll see uncontrollable physical activity as well as an inner tension and anxiety. You notice that they're uptight, almost, uh, almost paranoid in some cases. Um, this out-of-controllable uh, physical activity is often, right, not always, but often repetitious and pointless, right? Sometimes you see some of those weird hand movements or face gestures and that kind of thing. People may repeat words, that happens, and behaviors, that also happens, but not accomplish anything. I think I told the story about a friend of mine who uh, emptied out his two fishing tackle boxes and set everything apart and same size and shape only to throw everything back in and start over. It's one of those things that uh, this is sort of referring to, right? Sometimes they may look and feel nervous, pace the floor, feel confined, right? Sometimes you'll see them like a caged cat. It may release it and may release tension by talking or shouting. Sometimes they talk pretty darn fast too. They may talk more, and like I said, faster than normal, and their thoughts race, their hands and legs may shake. There's a whole slew of things that come along with that. Um, some of the psychological effects of stimulants. Um, I know I kind of probably touched base on some of this stuff in our last session, um, but I got a little, uh, 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 a little overwhelmed with some of my own personal conversation. Right, and I talked about using and you know some of my own personal experience and some of my insight. Right, and uh, started chasing rabbits. Right, um, so I'm kind of catching up on what I left off. Um, psychological effects. Sometimes there's uh, a lot more powerful stimulants than others, like cocaine and amphetamine, can cause strong mood changes. They can make a person feel alert, confident, happy, high, or maybe even depressed. Right. We mentioned some of that, too. They do this 
by affecting the level of neurotransmitters. A few sessions ago, we talked about neurotransmitters, right? The kind of things that go on in the brain. When someone uses stimulants, the level of these neurotransmitters temporarily rises. But when the person stops taking the drug, the levels fall below normal. That's why they seem depressed when they come down. The body chemistry's got to catch up. They will fall lower than below normal, making the person feel depressed and sometimes anxious. Right? Uh, it's been a crazy, crazy deal here uh, with this weather. Uh, one other thing that I didn't uh, mention was delirium. Delirium is a state of severe confusion. That happens a lot too. When people continue to use strong stimulants over a long period of time and or in large doses, they may experience something called delirium. In such cases, they are confused and excited to the extent that they may or probably are delirious. They may not know what day it is. They may not know what time it is. They may not even know where they're at for a moment. They may forget who they are, or that means, you know, their names, their friends' names, um, speech rambles. Sometimes they just kind of go on and on about a whole lot of nothing, right? And they don't tend to make sense. So that's another scenario um, that could happen um, with some of these stimulants if they're uh, taken in high doses or for long periods of time, right? So family, listen in, okay? Listen in. Uh, lean into this session just a little bit. I'm hoping to share some insight on triggers, craving, relapse, and ways to help avoid relapse. Um, again, I've mentioned before that it can sometimes be a part of the process, relapse that is, but it's not a requirement. You know, your alcoholic or addict family member may know um, what some of these are for themselves some triggers, right? They may know what some of those are for themselves, but when you ask an alcoholic or an addict about triggers, sometimes they're not sure, right? Sometimes they're not sure. And so it just takes a little bit of time for them. That's one of the reasons they go into treatment. They get to learn about some of those things um, that come around that are triggers that they may not even recognize themselves, right? So first, what is a trigger? In this program or in this session, you go, we'll go over just a few of them. Um, the term drug is used to describe all mood-altering substances, including alcohol and other um, sedative hypnotics, as well as opioids, stimulants, um, those kinds of drugs. Also saw on, uh, was it today, this morning, where Hoda and her sidekick we're talking about somebody did a video on opioids and their effects on the community across the country. You know, um, you guys can research that. There's been a whole lot of deaths related to overdose and opioids. Uh, it's a real, real problem, right? So when thinking and talking about cravings for alcohol or other drugs, right, it can make some people crave them more. 
right? Talking about them, sharing their story, especially if they're new to recovery, right? And they're newcomers in the program. Um, sometimes you'll see them in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous or they'll be in an NA meeting and just not quite feel confident enough to share. Well, some of that is, um, sure, and they're shy, and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, but some of them are pretty anxious about being there in the first place. Uh, being around people who are have, have history of using can be a trigger and create some craving for some people. So there's a whole lot of reasons for why talking about it in itself can become a trigger as well. Um, with this in mind, why would a treatment program choose to discuss relapse and drug craving? Well, let's talk about that, right? Uh, one reason is kind of simple. Thinking and even dreaming about alcohol and other drugs is a natural part of recovery. Learning how to stop these thoughts from turning into cravings. In, in the treatment world, we call learning how to do or exercise thought stopping. Um, and it works. It works. So you learn how to stop these thoughts from turning into cravings. However, it can help prevent a person from returning to whatever drug of choice they may have, right? Whatever their drug of choice is, um, discussing it can sort of help aid and mapping out ways um, to get around it, right? So we're going to discuss a number um, of some of what these triggers might look like. Um, I have quite a few, and I'm not going to mention them all, but it might be some news to some people, right? Um, some triggers can be as simple as being home alone. I know some people um, say money, money in their pockets. Um, sometimes they're hanging around a certain group of friends, right? And unfortunately, if they're hanging around a certain group of family members, right? I know sometimes in the Hispanic world, everything that we do um, tends to involve alcohol. Not always in extremes. I'm not saying that uh, my culture is always drinks alcoholically, but, you know, you always have those aunts and uncles or cousins. And sometimes if you're trying to uh, behave yourself, so to speak, um, they don't always help just because of their influence. They may not be trying to force you to do anything. Um, you just may be at a gathering where it's just custom um, for everybody to be having uh, drinks, right? Um, sometimes just before breakfast, that can be a trigger for people who like coffee, trying to quit coffee, or cigarettes. Cigarettes. Man, I quit over 10 years ago, and a good chilly morning with a cup of coffee was a craving for me to have a cigarette. Seems kind of weird, I know, right? Um, sometimes, if people are still trying to get ready to go out and hang out with some sober friends, early on, just the process of getting ready to go out in itself can be a little bit of a trigger, right? Because you always did it before you were going to hit the club, right? It becomes procedural, a procedural memory. Um, and you have to kind of get an idea of what um, procedural memory is. One of the easiest ways to kind of describe that is it happens as you learn how to ride a bike, right? Nobody has to get retrained with how to work the pedals and balance a bike every single time they make the attempt. Once you practice it, 
a few times, right? It becomes second nature, and you can just run up to a bike, jump on, and be out of there, right? So that's kind of what that is. Driving. Driving. Some people have their routine in driving. You jump in. Is it seatbelt, ignition, radio? Or is it ignition, radio, seatbelt? Whatever your process is, right? Whatever your process is, becomes so deep-seated that it becomes second nature. And unfortunately, some of the reasons for why we drink and drug can be that deep-seated as well, right? Let me veer off topic here and kind of uh, describe that a little bit. Procedural memory guides the processes we perform and must frequently reside below normal level of conscious awareness. So you don't even, you're not even aware that you're already in motion, right? Already not even aware that you're already in motion. That's what that means. And most frequently resides below the level of conscious awareness. Tying your shoe. You don't have to retrain to tie your shoe every time you're putting it on. Right? You just slip the shoe on. You have the thing tied uh, in a matter of no time. Um, when needed, procedural memories are automatically retrieved and utilized for execution of the integrated procedure involved in both cognitive and motor skills. So your brain is already telling you before you even realize it, hey, this is what you're feeling, some depression. Hey, this is something you always want to avoid, avoid emotionally. Hey, um, you know the name of that street, right? And it just happens. It just happens. And again, some of the reasons for why, where, when, and how we were drinking and drugging lie dormant in that same, I call it a memory file. I don't know if it has any other name other than procedural memory. Uh, I'm just saying this part of the process. You know, you don't even have to co be cognizant of. You just passed Joe Blow's street. You don't even have to be aware of it. The brain knows. Have you ever gone through a red light or gone through an intersection and as you get through it, you second guess whether it was red or green. I know I've done that quite a few times in my in my driving time frame. Right? Gone through the light and look back and oh no. Was that light green? Right? That's because the eyes can send messages to the brain without you being completely aware of it. I think the eyes pick up on the light signal. You're busy fiddling with the radio, which you probably shouldn't be. Right, or reaching back to pop one of the kids, who knows, right? And your eyes glance at the light, send a signal to the brain, it's green, let's just keep going, and then there you go, right? That's some pretty deep-seated stuff. And so when you're dealing with times, moments in time of the day, that can be triggers as well. Before breakfast, after work, right? Before going out, we talked about that, before a date. During a date, right, um, before sex can be a trigger for someone. Maybe they need help relaxing or even after sex, I guess. That can be uh, a thing too, right? 
Um, there's many of those. I talked about after work on payday. Payday itself can be a trigger for some people, right? Um, it being the weekend, um, it being the last weekday on Friday, uh, when you're feeling sad, when falling, when feeling depressed, when you're celebrating, <laughs> when you're celebrating something, that can be a trigger as well, right? That can be a trigger as well. And those are things that aren't necessarily always visual. The brain just recalls being near this park, near that street, right? People just, it just happens. And I hope, family, that you can uh, gain some insight by knowing that some of these things um, that triggers are not always as plain and simple as someone calling you and inviting you out, right? It's, it, it, it sometimes can be so subtle. You're driving around town, and again, there's that street. And your brain knows it. You didn't give it a second thought, so you thought, right? And then 10, 15 minutes later, all of a sudden, you think about using, and you don't even know why. Family members, that can be the honest truth. The thought of drinking or drugging pops up, and they're not even sure why. Sometimes it's for subtle reasons like that. Um, sometimes there's no explanation. There's no explanation. Right? So gaining some insight on what triggers and craving can be is really good for the whole family. Because then you can kind of help understand um, your alcoholic or addict and realize that some of the stuff that they do or we do is, or some of the reasonings for it are so deep-seated. So deep-seated. There's questions related to that that's in this uh, Living in Balance curriculum that I have. It's called uh, List Places Where uh, and Activities During Which You Did Not Use Alcohol and Other Drugs. That's because we're trying to get them to recall some moments where those things weren't part of the part of the gathering, part of the social event, whatever it was, right? So that we can draw out some positive times where there was no alcohol or drugs used, right? Because um, that, that makes it difficult. That makes it very difficult. And there's different kinds of triggers, okay? There's different kinds of triggers. Family, I hope you're really listening. Um. Triggers are feelings, experiences, people, places, and things that are associated with your drinking or drug use. They are different. There are different types of triggers, internal, external, and sensory triggers. That's a big one, family. If your alcoholic and addict is having trouble, you got to know that they're dealing with internal, external, and even sensory triggers. All of these usually work together to create a drug craving. Mm. So remember, this stuff can be deep, deep-seated. Okay? When they tell you that, I don't know what I was doing or thinking, I just ran into Joe Blow at Walmart, or I happened to see him walking down another aisle, right? He doesn't even, that's the crazy thing about this, is they don't even have to make contact. 
they could just see a former party buddy walking down a different aisle in Walmart. And before they're done shopping and back out to the car, craving their drink or drug of choice. Right? It can happen just like that. Internal triggers are feelings that people have before or during drinking or using drugs. Some people may feel insecure about sex or think they have to drink alcohol in order to relax before having sex. You know, it's just one of those things. Maybe because they always, always drink before feeling insecure related to anything they feel insecure about. Right? It doesn't necessarily have to be just when fixing to engage in sex. The body records the habit of doing it when those feelings of insecurity occur. The feeling becomes a trigger to drink or drug. Other people may use drugs when they're feeling angry, lonely, depressed, sad, or bored. But many feelings can become an internal trigger. Right? The first time you use because you're angry, the brain records that and records the payoff of the drink or drug. Second time you drink because you're angry, the brain records that. I had these feelings. Here's the reward, right? And you do it a third and fourth and fifth time. Then it falls into this procedural memory sort of thing. So as soon as you have whatever the feeling might be, it doesn't be anger. It can be sad, depression, whatever. As soon as the brain feels a remote hint of that starting to occur, I truly believe the brain goes into autopilot, right? The brain goes into autopilot. It's learned how to protect you from those thoughts, feelings, and emotions, whatever you're dealing with. And then hence, there we have the craving, the trigger, then the craving, right? And some of that stuff can happen so quickly. And again, and below a lower level of conscious awareness, Internal triggers also, for those, um, tri- those triggers are the people, places, and things associated with drinking or using whatever drugs. Some people's external triggers might be placed where they bought, right? Might be a places where they bought or used drugs, certain bars, certain clubs, you know, favorite hangout, right? Could be just the park in the neighborhood, Right, it's all it's doesn't have to be anything particular. Their favorite hangout, right? Whatever it is, while they were drinking or using, right? People they drank with, people use drugs with. They know they hung out there, wherever it's at. Those sorts of things. It could just be Friday night. Could be the holidays. I mean, when it comes to triggers, there's almost endless. Almost an endless list. Okay. Sensory triggers. Here we are. Sensory triggers are related to the senses of sight, sound, taste, or touch. Right? And sometimes I feel like those two before are external. Or sometimes they can probably all three bleed in together depending on your situation. They might include certain types of lights seen on a dance floor, certain types of music or specific songs, 
or the taste of a drug. For example, powdered sugar or artificial sweetener, which resembles powdered drugs, can be a powerful trigger for some people who used cocaine. Methamphetamine, right, can be cocaine, methamphetamine, or heroin. Cravings can also be triggered by a cup of coffee. Well, it was sure for me when it came to that and smoking. Mm, cup of coffee in the morning, right? It could also be they could also be triggered by a cup of coffee or a cigarette if you used to have these things while using drugs or drinking. If you're used to having those things in those same time frames, right? Then there you are. Um, all those dots start to connect in the brain all over again. So it can be pretty subtle, family members, for your drug addict or alcoholic. I wish, I don't know, if they're telling you they truly don't know, then they probably truly don't know. I don't know. In my experience as a drug and alcohol counselor, I've asked the question to people who were on their second or third attempt. What happened? What happened? And usually it'll start off with something like, man, I really don't know. I really don't know. Right. But then as they think about it, especially if they've been in the program, if they sit back and think about it, they start telling me things like, I thought I had it. I stopped going to meetings. I stopped calling my sponsor. Right. I stopped visiting my parents on this particular day that became routine for us to visit on. There's they build a routine. Right. A recovery routine. And they slowly but surely stop doing that routine. Right. And as that happens, they become a little more vulnerable because it never fails. Miserable, miserable and miserable love or what is that? Misery loves company. You stop doing those things that kept you on a positive track. That's when you run in to little Joey dealer in Walmart. It never fails. So alcoholics, addicts, you got to know these things, right? The name of your internal trigger, describe it to yourself and share it with a family member, right? Also know the name and maybe even describe an external trigger, right? Don't wait till you're already drunk and high. That's what happens. People wait till they're drunk and high and a fight started and then they want to try to communicate. It doesn't work. It's too late at that point. Right? When you're clean and sober and clear-headed, figure these out for yourself and share them with somebody. Right? Try to name and describe a sensory trigger. Right? Plus, you want to do this for yourself. The more insight you have about yourself, the more success you'll have in trying to stay clean and sober. If you don't have an idea of what your triggers are or what sparks craving for you, mm, that's not a good setup. Not a good setup. When it comes to dealing with triggers, right? The first step is dealing with triggers is identifying them. Share them with somebody. Right? People who are often aware of their triggers 
for their substance use, even though others may recognize them easily, right? For this reason, feedback from other people can really help identify your triggers. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Some people see them before you do. Right? People have sometimes people around you who know you well enough have a little more insight on what your triggers might be in some cases. Right? So don't avoid them, share them. Get to know them so you know how to get around them and learn how to process them. After you know what your triggers are, you can start avoiding them or processing them. Why do they influence you so much, being spiritually or emotionally? Which we'll get into that kind of stuff a little later. Once you have identified certain high-risk situations, people, and their triggers, you need to try to avoid them. It may require some work to meet new people, find new places to go, and get rid of things that associate you with drinking or drugging. Okay, folks. Help that alcoholic or addict out. Get to know those triggers, right? It makes no sense to avoid meetings, too. You know, you draw power from congregating with like-minded people. You didn't mind hanging out with a bunch of drunks and addicts, right? Use that same thought process and get around a bunch of clean people. Congregating with clean and sober people will help you in the long run. I appreciate this time with you guys. I hope you got something out of it and hope to see you soon. Bye for now.